So uh, this is uh, uh, Alzheimer's World uh, Day uh, coming up. So there's a lot of focus on Alzheimer's. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Emeritus Professor of Pharmacology uh, from the University of Oxford, who has really blazed the trail in relation to uh, Alzheimer's and dementia prevention. And rather than me uh, unpack uh, Professor David Smith's uh, amazing credentials uh, that really lead to us absolutely trusting uh, his guidance on this very important subject, I thought, David, I would welcome you um, and ask you to tell us a little bit about your career at Oxford University, because I believe you've been there a very long time. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, I came to Oxford as an undergraduate in 1959 to read biochemistry at Christchurch, and um, I never left. I'm still there. I'm an emeritus professor, so that's an awful long, long innings, but it's a wonderful place to be, and I've had a, a great experience. So I did my uh, first degree in biochemistry, then I went to do a, a doctorate in pharmacology under Professor Blaschko, a very famous pharmacologist. Um, who was who emigrated from Germany before the war, and then I stayed on in pharmacology as a research fellow, then became a lecturer, and then in 1984 was appointed to the chair of pharmacology, which I held for 21 years, and uh, retiring in 2005, um, but continuing my research there for many more years. I finally closed my laboratory in in pharmacology in Oxford in 2017. And to be the chair of pharmacology, and I think we should point out here that Oxford University's Department of Pharmacology is rated as one of the best in the world, which uh, sort of happened uh, during the time that you were chair. And I read somewhere else you were vice dean. Uh, were you in charge of a lot of researchers there? How did it work? Well, it, the department for, for a start was, was already very well known uh, because it had extremely distinguished staff. William Payton uh, was the head before me. And then when I took it over, I enlarged it very considerably and got some money for a new building. So we have a superb building now, um, which accommodates about 200 people. And in the last two years, it's been ranked as number one in the world in pharmacology and pharmacy departments out of 300 plus departments. So we're very, very proud, proud of that. And then... Yes, sorry. Uh, yes, the university reorganized itself uh, in the year 2000 and created divisions rather than faculties. And a division of medical sciences was set up to include all the clinical and preclinical departments and psychology. And uh, I was appointed deputy head or vice dean for five years. And my main responsibility was regarding appointments. I was chairman of the appointments committee for that five-year period. Um, we had at that time around 5,000 active researchers and 900 of whom were doctoral students in the medical school. Uh, so it's one of the biggest medical schools in Europe and it's grown enormously since I retired. So I have no idea what the numbers are now. So you will have influenced a lot of doctors going through training at Oxford University. Well, it's funny you should ask that because recently I um, had to see a doctor here in Sweden and, and we were talking 
And uh, she said, see, you seem to know a few doctors. I said, well, I was 40 years teaching in pharmacology, 100 medical students a year. That adds up to an awful lot of people. <laughs> so, yes, I've been fortunate to, um, to, to know some brilliant young people who have gone on to great things. And I have to say that, uh, I mean, my, my mentor uh, uh, was Dr. Linus Pauling, a superb chemist. And what I loved about his research papers and also yours is they're absolutely precise in language. There's no wasted words. Uh, everything is a statement of fact. It's all very clearly explained. And there's an awful lot of research papers out there that are, you know, that are messy uh, in their description studies that are messy in their design. Uh, so I've learned a tremendous amount out of the way you, you know, you lay the science out. And uh, I've, you're certainly in my very top list of trusted scientists, both for actual research, but also for how you communicate the science. Thank you. I think I owe back to my school, Kingswood School in Bath, where we had a wonderful teaching in the English language. And uh, I discovered when I moved recently um, old English essays that I wrote in my last two years at school in 1956 and 57. And uh, I must say they're very good. You know, you, you <laughs> well. So I owe it to the schools and the teachers there. So what was it that got you interested in the subject of Alzheimer's? Well, I came to Alzheimer's two completely separate ways. One was scientific. I'd been doing some research on a protein in the brain called acetylcholinesterase. It's an enzyme that destroys the transmitter acetylcholine. And this was traditionally thought or assumed to be a membrane-bound protein at the synapse, which broke down the acetylcholine after it had been released uh, from the nerve ending. And we found to our surprise that a certain proportion of it, maybe only 20 or 30 percent, was actually not membrane bound. It was soluble in the brain homogenate. And so we were curious, what's the role of this? And then we, I realized that, of course, the cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain contains acetylcholinesterase. So we wondered if perhaps acetylcholinesterase was being secreted from nerve cells into the cerebrospinal fluid. And we looked and we did some experiments which demonstrated that in animal studies. And then the next immediate question was, since the, the acetylcholine system is degenerated in Alzheimer's, that had been known for many years, well, since about 1970s, um, could it be that the level of acetylcholinesterase in the cerebral spinal fluid reflected this degeneration and, and was lower? In patients. And so we approached the pathologist in Oxford, Margaret Asiri, and she had stored samples of cerebral spinal fluid, CSF, and we tested it. And indeed, yes, the um, acetylcholinesterase level was 30% of normal in the people who had Alzheimer's. So here we thought we had a beginnings of a diagnostic test, of which there were absolutely none at the time. This was the early 1980s. So that's how I got interested scientifically. Then Sadly, almost exactly the same time in 1984, my mother developed dementia, which was, and she was given a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So I had a very strong emotional drive to try to understand this terrible disease. 
I had, uh, I remember back then this tremendous interest in acetylcholine, uh, which is a neurotransmitter. And choline, by the way, is a, a phospholipid that we eat. For example, it's very, very rich in eggs. And I believe it was that interest that led to the drug Aricept, uh, which is still very, very widely used and does have some effects, but I think it's a little bit short-lived. Uh, is that the case? Oh. All the current drugs, except one that are used to treat patients with Alzheimer's, are actually cholinesterase inhibitors, uh, the idea being to boost the level of acetylcholine in the brain. They have Their effects are really quite short-lived, often only a matter of months. You're lucky if the patient benefits more than a year. And then when the effects wear off, the disease is very, very obvious and uh, rather devastating. So they're symptomatic relief. They help to improve the memory a little bit, um, but they don't have any effect on the disease process. And then when did you make your original discovery about homocysteine uh, being high in the brains of people with Alzheimer's? Well, this came about because in order to, to study the acetylcholinesterase as a diagnostic test, and it was a particular form of the acetylcholinesterase which we had to study by um, electrophoresis, a, pro, a method of separating proteins, we wanted to set up a, a cohort of patients and controls who would volunteer to give us their CSF. That's quite something. You know, have you, would you like to have a, a lumbar puncture? Anyway, that's your, one- that's your cerebrospinal fluid. That's the fluid that bathes the brain, but it's also in the spinal cord. Yes, it goes down into the spinal cord. And you can sample it by putting a needle in, in the lumbar region below where the actual spine is, uh, where, where, below where the, the nervous uh, tissue is, and you can get some out without causing any damage. Um, but it, it's not a, a sort of pleasant experience. But I have a wonderful team of nurses led by Elizabeth King who managed to persuade people that she went, they went to give talks to other people's homes and managed to persuade people to volunteer for this. So we recruited um, a group of patients with memory problems and or diagnosis of dementia referred by GPs in Oxford. And we recruited at the same time this group of volunteer controls so we could compare uh, the um, the cerebral spinal fluid acetylcholinesterase levels in the two groups. And indeed, we confirmed the, the finding we'd made before uh, that there was a difference. It didn't turn out to be particularly accurate diagnostically, but it was a very nice um, study. In setting up this cohort, we realized we had a chance to compare people with dementia with those who were aging normally without any cognitive impairment. And so we set up a, a protocol where we did a variety of tests. Many of them were tests of, of memory or cognition, uh, but we also took blood samples and we did brain scans because it was known already then, from, in fact, from the early pathologists back in the beginning of the 20th century even, that part of the brain called the hippocampus was particularly vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease. So... I wanted to see if we could see this in the CT scans. In those days, CT scans were done on MRIs. And so I asked the radiologist, why can't I see the hippocampus in these scans? And he said, well, because we have to stop 
scanning before we get there to avoid irradiating the eye. But I have a way of getting around this, he says. I'm studying temporal lobe epilepsy patients uh, that the surgeons operate on. And I found that if I start the scanning from below the eye and work upwards until we reach just below the eye, then I can get a very nice picture of the hippocampus. And that's what we did. So we started in 1988 doing what we call temporal lobe-oriented scans to look at the hippocampus. And yes, indeed, we found it was shrunken in people with Alzheimer's, very markedly so. And that became an accurate diagnostic test for Alzheimer's in people just by a brain scan. So that's how we started. So we then followed... You, you asked me how I got to homocysteine, Jane, sorry, it's taking a few time. We then followed these people over, over time. We did scans every year. And we found that normal volunteers, the hippocampus was shrinking very slowly uh, over time. It was shrinking a little bit, but not very much. Whereas people with Alzheimer's, it was shrinking 10 times as fast. It was just what we call catastrophic. You know, It was alarming to see it. The tissue just seemed to disintegrate in front of you. So we formed this hypothesis that there must be some sort of catastrophic event in the brain which attacks the hippocampus in people with Alzheimer's. And if we could find out what this event was, we might even be able to prevent it. So we had various ideas. Obviously, one is an infection, uh, which we couldn't really find any evidence of at that time. And the second one was something to do with the blood vessels, because, of course, catastrophic events are a characteristic of blood vessels. When the blood vessel bursts or gets, gets closed up, you get a lack of oxygen in the tissue and the tissue dies. So I presented this hypothesis and the data at a seminar in Oxford, and a member of the audience came up to me afterwards and said, had you thought of looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease in your patients with Alzheimer's? At that time, it was thought there was clearly a difference between vascular-type dementia and Alzheimer's, and there is, but it's less of a difference now. Anyway, so one of these risk factors was called homocysteine. Raised homocysteine is a risk factor for heart disease and stroke. So we started to look at the samples that we'd stored in the freezer from our patients and, uh, for homocysteine, and that's how we found the link. High homocysteine was associated with people with Alzheimer's. So um, there's really, you know, two fundamental questions here. One is what is what actually is homocysteine? But just before that also, uh, we hear about Alzheimer's, we hear about dementia, we hear about cognitive decline. Could you just explain the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's and then explain what homocysteine actually is? Yes. Um, dementia, as I think uh, everyone knows by now, is when it's a disease of, of higher organisms, basically. We don't know whether animals can suffer such things. But it's when the higher functions of the man um, are impaired, particularly things like me uh, memory, um, planning, uh, things that the brain is needed for and which characterizes us human beings. It's a devastating disease. Alzheimer's is the commonest form of dementia and was shown by Alzheimer's to Alzheimer himself in 1906 to be due to a particular kind of pathology in the brain. The nerve cells uh, have particular proteins that are deposited in them 
and that leads to the malfunction of that part of the brain, in particular the hippocampus. So Alzheimer's is probably, well, certainly the commonest form of dementia, roughly 60 to 70% of all people, all dementia cases would be Alzheimer's. So and so you can be diagnosed with dementia on the basis of sort of losing cognitive function, in other words, a cognitive function test, but to really confirm that it's Alzheimer's requires um, that scan that you actually developed, uh, the, the method of, or, or your colleagues did, the method of scanning the medial temporal lobe. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, um, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's ultimately requires an examination of the brain after death by histopathology to look for these proteins. That's the, the gold standard. What we found was that the brain scan matches remarkably well, not perfectly, but remarkably well with this gold standard. So you can do it in life by doing this scan to measure the size of the medial temporal lobe, which includes the hippocampus. And what is it that homocysteine uh, does, or, or what raises homocysteine, and what's the underlying process that it's reflecting? Homocysteine is an amino acid that's present in all tissues, and it's part of metabolism. It's not a, an amino acid that's part of the protein backbone. It's, it's involved in metabolism, and it's a metabolic product of an essential dietary amino acid called methionine, which is crucial for, for function because it donates a methyl group, which is very important in biological function. In donating its methyl group, methionine is converted to homocysteine, which is present in the cells, and which leaks out from the cells into the blood. So it's, it's always turning over homocysteine. It's, it vary, levels vary quite a bit from hour to hour, day to day. The important thing with homocysteine is that its levels are determined very largely by B vitamins, in particular folate, B12, and vitamin B6. So the levels that we have in, in the blood reflect the B vitamin status in the cells of the body. And then moving forward to, to the design of your landmark study in 2010, where you gave vitamin B6, folic acid, and B12 to people with cognitive decline, or we could say perhaps you know, pre-dementia, pre-Alzheimer's, uh, you used doses that were really a lot higher than the RDA. I think 20 milligrams of B6, the RDA is about two. I think eight, was it 800 micrograms of folic acid, and the RDA yeah. you know, varies between 200 and 300 in different countries. And then 1,000 milligrams, I believe, of B12, uh, oh, micrograms, no. micrograms um, and the RDA of B12 is 2.5 micrograms. So why did you go for these higher levels? Well, we did that because previous studies on um, adults and particularly on elderly showed that if you want to lower homocysteine, which was the object of, of this uh, trial, uh, you need to give rather high doses, otherwise it will take many months. So we wanted to, we didn't want to have to wait many months. We, we, the trial was planned to be two years, but we wanted to get the homocysteine down quite quickly. And it had been shown that in a matter of three to four weeks, you can get the homocysteine down by giving these high doses. And these were considered 
then totally safe. There's no evidence of any harm from these high doses. That's why we chose. Mm, I remember talking to you um, when you were just waiting to crack the code and find the results uh, of, of the study. It was uh, very exciting. So can you explain uh, you know, the, the fundamental design of the study and what the results were and what that actually means? Well, the study was designed to uh, look at the effects of the B vitamins on lowering homocysteine in people with mild cognitive impairment. That's a syndrome that has a clear diagnosis or the uh, diagnostic criteria have been established for that. And it seems, as you said, to be a prodromal stage of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so we, we didn't expect that we'd be able to do anything valuable to people with fully developed Alzheimer's because their large parts of the brain are uh, destroyed, including the medial temporal lobe. Uh, but we hope that by choosing people at a very early stage, the mild cognitive impairment, we might be able to show some benefit. So we had already shown that um, people with mild cognitive impairment, their brains were shrinking at about twice the rate of normal elderly people. The whole brain was shrinking at about 1% per year compared with normal elderly 0.5% per year. So we thought this would be a useful marker uh, to see whether um, it would uh, be influenced by lowering homocysteine. And uh, we, we uh, collaborated with Steve Smith, who was a, a brilliant physicist based in the John Radcliffe Hospital uh, in the MRI Center, who had developed a way of look, measuring brain atrophy extremely rap, uh, accurately. And the great thing about accurate measurements is, of course, you don't need so many people to get the results. The, the idea would, was to measure the rate of brain atrophy over a period of two years in a, in a group of people with mild cognitive impairment, half of whom would be given B vitamins and the other half would be given the placebo. And we calculated the numbers we needed to do this uh, based on a possible beneficial effect of slowing of the brain atrophy by 20%. We recruited the people, I think, all together we had um, almost 200 who had brain scans and volunteered. And these were people living in the community who, who just had a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. What they themselves noticed or their partners was a, a slight memory impairment, but they weren't ill, they weren't patients, they were living in the community. And what happened? What were the results? Well, uh, this was... Certainly, as you said, a very exciting time. It was two years in the... In the uh, each patient was studied for two years, but the whole trial, because it was spread over some time, lasted about nearly five years. And at the end, we were sent the results by Steve Smith at the weekend. He'd, he'd um, measured the brain, rate of chip atrophy of the brains um, by his method, and he sent me the results um, as a as an Excel file. And I suddenly realized that the, I needed to decode the patients, the subjects, for those who had been given B vitamins compared with those who hadn't. And I was very frustrated because the decode uh, was carefully locked away for security reasons. And it was weekend and no one was around who could unlock it. The, the nurses were all away and I couldn't contact anyone. So Helga Refsum and I, Helga was a co-principal investigator, 
were wondering how on earth we could crack this code. And we suddenly thought, well, of course we can, because we've measured the homocysteine. And the homocysteine surely will be lower in those who are treated with B vitamins. And so we, we divided the, the group into those with low homocysteine and those with high homocysteine. And that turned out to be pretty well right, that the people with low homocysteine are the ones who had the B vitamins. And they turned out to have a rate of brain atrophy that was 30% slower than the people on placebo. It was a very big effect, very, very statistically very significant. And I think the effects became even greater when you looked at the people who had started with a raised homocysteine level. Yes, that was a, that's a very important point, which people don't always know, recognize, but it's, it's actually crucial that the effect of the B vitamins depends entirely on the baseline homocysteine. If in, in our trial, if the homocysteine was below nine, there was no benefit in taking the B vitamins. The rate of atrophy remained the same whether they took um, B vitamins or placebo. As it went up from nine to 11, it became significantly slower in the B vitamin group. And by the time um, the homocysteine level reached 13, which was the top quarter of the population that we were studying, um, it had a tremendous effect. It slowed the atrophy rate by 53%, which was a quite dramatic result. And what are actual measures on cognitive function? How did it improve their memory? Yes, well, the trial, as I said, was only calculated on the basis of, of measuring atrophy, which you can do accurately. But we did, of course, measure lots of cognitive functions, including memory, in the, in the subjects because we were interested. And then we, so we analyzed the, the cognitive functions. So we found the same thing that people with low, lowish homocysteine at baseline, in fact, below 11, showed no benefit of the B vitamins in any cognitive tests. But people with homocysteine above 11 showed clear benefit. In fact, um, some, in some cases, the rate of decline of memory was completely stopped by the B vitamin treatment over two years. So we had people whose memory decline was just frozen by the B vitamins. And that was a, a very unexpected result because we hadn't expected it to be such a strong effect on, on cognition. Did anyone improve their cognitive score? Um, not really. I think... This is a group of people who, who cognitively are declining over time. And so it's, it's hard to say whether anyone actually improved, uh, but certainly they didn't get worse, and that's the most important thing. So really what's being said here, first of all, is that dementia or pre-dementia leading to Alzheimer's is not only a function of homocysteine, because there are people with lower homocysteine who don't respond to B vitamins. There's obviously something else going on. But for those with a homocysteine level above 11 and certainly above 13, uh, there is very clear evidence of uh, almost a halving in the rate of brain shrinkage and potentially uh, no further memory decline. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And then uh, a few years later, you started to get interested in omega-3 fats. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, how you built that into your research. Well, of course, we, we were then by then convinced that looking at brain atrophy was an important tool to look at 
uh, cognitive decline. And so I followed the literature on, on brain atrophy and a paper came out showing that the omega-3 fatty acid level in elderly people seemed to influence the rate of shrinkage of, of the brain. And those with a good omega-3 fatty acid level, the brain shrank less. So I thought, well, we have the perfect um, group to test this on. We have our placebo group of nearly 100 subjects who had just a, just a placebo, no B vitamins. And we, if we measure the um, omega-3s in this group, at baseline, we can see whether a high omega-3 was slowing their rate of brain atrophy, which was going at about 1% per year. So we set up the assays for omega-3 and fatty acids, and we measured it. And to our initial disappointment, there was no influence of the omega-3 fatty acid level on the rate of brain atrophy in the placebo group. But there was a dramatic effect in the group that had been given B vitamins. This group showed marked slowing of atrophy uh, by high levels of omega-3 at baseline. So those with omega-3 in the top third of the population that we were studying, uh, the brain atrophy slowed by 40%. And that was associated with low homocysteine. So we realized that there must maybe some sort of interaction between the homocysteine and the omega-3s. And so we then looked at people with high homocysteine given B vitamins and who also had high omega-3 levels at baseline. And there, the rate of brain atrophy was slowed by 70%. So this was a really dramatic result, which was completely unexpected. You couldn't have predicted it. And just uh, that highest third omega-3 in the blood of your subjects, well, do you have any sense of what that you know, means in real terms, would they be eating two servings of fish a week? I mean, what what, what does that level of blood correlate with in terms of diet? There will be a lot of studies around um, in, in, in relation to omega-3 intake and blood levels. And I think we can safely say, yes, about two servings of fish a week would bring you up to that level. Or taking roughly two grams a day of omega-3 fatty acid capsules uh, would bring you up to that level. Um, that's so it turned out when we, we obviously asked our volunteers lots of questions about their diet and other things, and it turned out that that forty percent of our Oxford volunteers were taking omega three supplements, so it's not surprising we had a group with a high level of omega threes and that group who starts with the raised homocysteine given the b vitamins which lowers the homocysteine and the rate of brain shrinkage and those you know with the high omega 3 it lowers it even more um, by over 70% uh, what happened to that group's cognitive function there that was really dramatic they actually did show some improved cognitive improvement in certain memory tests for example so it, it was a really exciting result because they didn't just slow down their decline, they actually improved their performance. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's quite extraordinary. So basically, uh, you want to measure homocysteine if it's above 11, uh, take the appropriate B vitamins, make sure you're getting enough omega-3. Now, we know that that uh, from seafood or from omega-3 supplements, we know that this is not the whole story um, for dementia. Do we have an idea in terms of 
the risk factors for uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, how much of that risk is attributed to homocysteine, how much is attributed to omega-3, and uh, what's the rest of the risk about? There's been quite a few uh, epidemiological studies um, estimating the risk. Uh, there's there's a, a measure called population attributable risk, which is the epidemiologist's way of saying what proportion of a disease might be caused, and the emphasis is on might, might be caused by such a risk factor. And for homocysteine, there have been about four or five studies now, and the, and the estimate ranges from 5% up to 31% of Alzheimer's might, or dementia might be caused by raised homocysteine. The majority of the studies focusing on around 20%. So I think we, we feel fairly confident that as much as 20% of dementia might be caused by raised homocysteine. Similar studies for omega-3 or fish intake also suggest around 20% um, of uh, dementia may be related to inadequate intake of omega-3 fatty acids. Now, you can't add them up and say there's 40% is due to both because obviously the same people often have the same, uh, same risks. So, uh, but I think we can say that it's a very significant proportion of those with dementia who, whose dementia is likely to be caused by one or both of omega-3 deficit or B vitamin deficit. And that has enormous public health implications. So really what you're saying is that homocysteine, lack of B vitamins, and by the way, in older people, the absorption of B12 is a very critical part of that lack of B vitamins, uh, may account for a third of the risk for dementia, Alzheimer's. What are the other factors that are you know, considered and considerable and something that we can do something about? Uh, I think a third is perhaps a bit high. I would say, Patrick, about one-fifth or so, I'll count. But there are a, a larger number of other risk factors that are modifiable. We have the non-modifiable risk factors like our particular genes. There are some genes which increase our risk, and we can't at the moment do anything about that. Uh, but then there are a lot of risk factors which are basically non-genetic, and these include things like low education, early childhood experience of education turns out to be really quite important. That's something that, of course, society has to deal with. <clears throat> um, exercise is a very important factor. Even exercise in midlife or mid to late life uh, can be protective. So physical inactivity is a risk factor. Um, blood pressure control. It's very important to control your blood pressure because high blood pressure is a a risk factor for dementia. Uh, smoking is a risk factor. And now more recent studies have shown that air pollution is a risk factor for dementia. But these are all things that society as a whole will have to deal with. Uh, you can't always deal with them yourself. Things and like diabetes, important. Now, you've actually shown that an intervention, i.e. changing something, lowering homocysteine with B vitamins, I know you didn't give omega-3, but there are quite a few studies that have given omega-3 have made a difference. So do we have evidence right now that if somebody later in life starts exercising, stops smoking, 
brings their blood pressure down or perhaps controls or reverses their diabetes, that this actually makes for an improvement or at least a slowing down in um, worsening. The, it's very difficult to do trials like that, um, but the trials that have been done on exercise do, in fact, show that increasing your exercise level seem to, definitely seems to be protective. Um, another factor that I didn't mention is controlling your alcohol intake. That's important. But again, trials haven't been done. These are all observational studies, which therefore have a lot of caveats about them. Um, blood pressure control is important, and that's certainly been shown um, to reduce the, the incidence of dementia. Another one that I didn't mention is head injury. Um, obviously, you can't do experiments on that, but the good observational studies are very clear. People who've had previous head injury associated with unconsciousness have a greater risk of developing dementia later in life, much later in life. Uh, then we have things like social activity. Social activity in midlife is important and in late life and seems to be protective. Things like learning a language. In other words, enhancing your cognitive abilities, keeping cognitively active in late life uh, is protective uh, against dementia. But most of these studies have not had proper trials done, I'm afraid. So um, going back to your research, uh, looking at B vitamins and also omega-3 status and homocysteine, from a research point of view, what is needed next? Is there a, uh, a further definitive study that needs to be done to really nail the science or the evidence for this? Yes, I think there is, and we've been trying to get funding to do this for some years. Um, the definitive study, in my mind, would be to take people with mild cognitive impairment. That's most important that you take people at that stage, not later, and not earlier, because earlier there's no, nothing much to measure. So you have to take people who have a bit of cognitive impairment, who show progressive cognitive impairment over time, so you have something to measure. That's crucial. Um, and... We take this group and give them a combination of B vitamins and omega-3 fatty acids at the right doses and follow them for several years to see whether it actually does prevent the development of dementia. All we were able to show was that it actually does seem to modify the disease process in mild cognitive impairment, but we weren't able to, because the patients didn't, we didn't have them for long enough, to show that it actually prevents dementia. That would be the crucial experiment in my view and it can be done it's not too expensive and it really must be done in my view how long is such a study and how much does it cost and how 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 long have you been trying to get that money for what seems to be an absolutely critical study oh i think we've we started applying for funding maybe six or seven years ago <laughs> we estimated that you needed about uh, 1200 volunteers with mild cognitive impairment to do this study over a period of five years. And so it's, it's a quite expensive study. The costing at that time was around £6 million. Um, so that's where, we, that's where we were. I think now it might be more expensive, but it's, it's peanuts compared with the, the value that it would give um, both, of course, in society and human value, but in also economic value, if it turns out that's 
a viable way. I mean, I would imagine that if this was a patentable substance or drug, uh, that money would have been available in a, in a, in a shot. <clears throat> That's the problem. We have a, a, quite a problem with our, our studies that we're dealing with vitamins and people still have this funny idea that, oh, vitamins, well, they were discovered in the last century. All you need is a good, healthy, well-balanced diet. How often have I heard that phrase thrown back at me? It's really very, it's actually quite insulting because it's ignoring the science and just going on hearsay. Uh, It's not good enough to have a good, well-balanced diet. Some people, and people with high homocysteine, you definitely need to take additional supplements. And I mean, with your knowledge in pharmacology, if you had a drug that reduced the rate of brain shrinkage by over 70% and virtually stopped any further cognitive decline, surely that's a blockbuster. Absolutely. I, I gave a talk about our work soon after we published it at a major drug company. And uh, afterwards, the, uh, the director of um, um, neuroscience research came up to me and said, my God, he said, if that was a drug... We'd be rolling in money if we could license it. I said, yes, well, why don't you support the <laughs> They weren't interested in supporting a trial because there's no money in it. They can't patent the, the, the vitamins, of course. It's, a, it's something that really governments should take up. And we did apply naturally to um, government funding agencies. Uh, and we got this ridiculous reply from one of them. I better not say which one, but it's very irritating. We got this ridiculous supply. This is a very interesting proposal, but it should be done by uh, industry. <laughs> I know, and these blockbuster drugs, I mean, they're generating something like $10 billion a year in sales, $10 billion. So, you know, having $6 million, which is pretty much, you know, the average cost of a randomized controlled trial these days anyways, is absolutely nothing. But there lies the big problem. Nobody can patent it, so nobody can really you know, profit massively because anybody can sell B vitamins and, and omega-3. That's the biggest block, I believe. It is. And from an action point of view right now, from what we know right now, in an ideal world, you know, should, should the government, should Public Health England, should the National Health Service be doing something? Because still, it's incredibly hard, even if you have cognitive decline, to get a GP to measure homocysteine. Yeah, I think that something definitely should be done. And what should be done is proper cognitive screening. That that has been brought in at the GP level, uh, but there's a lot of resistance against it. In fact, just this week, the in JAMA, the US um, official body on, on recommendations published a report on screening, cognitive screening in the elderly, and they concluded that there was no value in it. And why was there no value? Because you can do nothing if you find people that are cognitively impaired. Well, we've shown that you can do something in a certain proportion of people with cognitive impairment, maybe a, you know, up to 20% or more. So it's definitely worth doing cognitive screening, and it's then worth measuring the homocysteine. And so both these things should be done, I think, in, in advanced countries. Um, I tried to interest NICE in measuring homocysteine, and they, they they weren't interested. So, you know, we're stuck. It's not something you can have as a routine in England. Uh, in most other Western countries, it's very straightforward. You, you can have your homocysteine measured. But for some reason in the UK, you can't. 
But some GPs do um, measure homocysteine. And so why can some do it and not others? Well, it, it costs money. I mean, it, it's, it's much more expensive to have it done in the UK because the standard um, assays that are set up in clinical chemistry laboratories are not available. So you have to send it to a special center. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we worked out that um, we did a health, health economics um, study of homocysteine and dementia, and uh, <clears throat> we worked out that if, if it was a national um, screening or a national measurement, uh, then it could be done for £10 a time. Nowadays, you have to pay anything up of, upwards of £50. Mm-hmm. And do you have any sense of how many lives and minds would be saved, how much money would be saved if anyone, uh, well, over 50, was screened for cognitive function and then had their homocysteine measured and if raised, given B vitamins, encouraged perhaps to have sufficient omega-3? What sort of, what sort of effect would that have? Well, I think we start with the, the shocking fact that a third of the people born in the UK in 2015, one third of people born in 2015, will develop dementia in their lifetime. So that is a horrendous number to think about. And out of that, those that will develop dementia, uh, a certain proportion will develop dementia because of raised homocysteine. In our health economics analysis, we did some estimates on this, uh, and it's, they're very much estimates, but something like 61,000 people will develop dementia due to raised homocysteine over in, in a year, um, and that's an awful lot of people. And if we can uh, delay the onset of dementia in these people, or even better, prevent it, that we estimated could save something like three to four billion pounds. So that not only are the numbers of people important, but the savings are huge. And it's such a, it seems to me such an, in a way, easy thing to do. I, the, when we were talking before you cracked the code, I got thinking at the time I was the CEO of the Food for the Brain Foundation. So what we did uh, was we, we got the, there, there are a number of uh, attributes of cognition tests that are used in memory centers. And we basically got permission to digitize those tests and produce the cognitive function test, which anyone can do for free at foodforthebrain.org. As of today, uh, we've just hit 350,000 people have taken the test. They get a score effectively like a traffic light system in the green, orange, or red. If they're in the orange or red, they get a letter to take to their doctor to measure the homocysteine. If they can do it privately, that's another route if the doctor doesn't agree. They also get a report because we ask them questions about what they eat and exercise and social interaction and alcohol and other such things. So they get a free report encouraging them to do uh, all the things, increase the antioxidants with fruit and veg, the B vitamins, the omegas, seafood, exercise, social interaction, not smoking, reducing alcohol, and so on. So, you know, the charity has been doing this. It doesn't really cost a lot. It seems that any GP could uh, send their uh, over 50-year-old uh, patients to a website to take the test. 
it's it's not it doesn't seem like uh, it's really an expensive intervention. It's more really just about education uh, with potential savings of literally billions and possibly hundreds of thousands of of lives or minds. So yes, I yeah. Think- it's a fantastic initiative, this cognitive function test, and I encourage people to, to take it whenever I talk to them. Uh, I think it's very valuable. So it's here we are. It's 10 years since your landmark study, and it's, it's frustrated me. I, I'm sure it's frustrated you that this hasn't moved forward. Um, I know when we spoke back in 2010, you were hoping that this would become sort of standard strategy within the health service. Um, what do you think are the barriers that we need to overcome? I think one of the barriers I mentioned already is this sort of feeling that vitamins are old hat and that they're not really necessary. Um, and there's also an awful lot of literature around saying that vitamins don't do you any good at all. They're completely useless. Um, those studies that, and the, quite a few of them have been published by reputable bodies like Cochrane, um, are flawed because what they look at, they look at healthy, normal people. Well, healthy, normal people don't need vitamin supplements. You only need supplements if you're not getting enough of the right kind of food and, or if you're not absorbing, like, uh, as you mentioned, older people don't absorb B12 very well. Uh, and so you have to look at populations that are, are not deficient but have inadequate intake of vitamins. And measuring homocysteine is a fantastic way to do that because it's a wonderful marker of three, of three different vitamins. And uh, I think that's what the problem is, that people are, are resistant to anything to do with vitamins. And it's, it's stuck there. NICE was definitely in that category. They... They didn't seem to believe that vitamins could be any good. It has to be a drug, you know. Um, so that's the barrier that I, fa- I face every day, but virtually when I talk to these official bodies. But what we what would be helpful would be if organisations like Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, were lobbying nice about this. Um, the Alzheimer's Research UK actually partly funded our trial. But every now and again, they come out with statements saying there's no, no treatment, no disease-modifying treatment around and everything. So I write to them and I say, well, you funded a, a treatment that actually is modifying the disease process. Why don't you blow your trumpets and, and get something done about it? Uh, so that's the, the barrier, I think, that, that there's a mental block. And is part of the problem there also medical education? I mean, uh, with your experience at Oxford, I mean, how much nutrition uh, do uh, training doctors actually get exposed That's to? That's a very good point. Um, I'm absolutely shocked when I discovered that there's no specific training on nutrition in Oxford Medical School, which is reckoned to be one of the best in Europe. That is appalling. I mean, it's quite unbelievable that there is no specific nutrition training. They pick it up as they go along in the other courses, and that's wrong. Um, I've been doing some teaching in the University of Oslo, and there the medical students have a whole course on nutrition, and that's really good. And and the Scandinavians are much better on nutrition, the doctors, than than we are in the UK. So, yes, um, nutrition is, is 
not just badly taught, it's just not taught. So are you actually saying that, you know, at Oxford, with your team, you identified the scan of the medial temporal lobe that helps to, you know, diagnose this condition. You identified an incredibly strong and easy-to-measure marker homocysteine. You then identified that B vitamins lower it and massively slow down the rate of cognitive decline, and that omega-3, if sufficient, does it to an even greater extent. And that is not being taught to medical students? No, definitely not. (laughs) Uh, uh, Anyway, uh, moving on to a more positive message of those who are listening, especially when you gave us that bombshell that one-third of people born this century will develop dementia if they do nothing about it. What is your message to those listening? What should we be doing to prevent dementia, Alzheimer's? I think the simplest message I can give is the one which is given by doctors generally nowadays, is to adopt a healthy lifestyle. It turns out that lifestyle is just as important for dementia as it is for heart disease, for example. So all the attributes of a healthy lifestyle, which include, of course, not just exercise, but also the right kind of foods, um, and limiting your alcohol intake and no smoking, things like that, all these attributes will help to prevent dementia. You might still get it for other reasons, but at least you can greatly reduce your risk of getting dementia if you adopt a healthy lifestyle. And in in particular, I think it's worth taking note of uh, the homocysteine story because that's a proven case, in my view, uh, and the omega-3 story. So that means making sure you're eating the right amount of fish and the right amount of B vitamin-rich foods. And if you're elderly... My advice would be to consider taking B12 supplements because most elderly people don't absorb it very thoroughly, very well. And how much B12 for older people? Well, I think in our trial we gave um, half a milligram a day. That's That's the sort of amount I would recommend, or up to one milligram a day, which is a huge 500 micrograms. Yes, big difference to the 2.5 microgram RDA. Uh, that 2.5 is simply not absorbed by older people. Mm-hmm. It's men, mo, many older people. And do you think it's worth supplementing omega-3, or you think eating two servings of oily fish a week is enough? Um, it's probably enough, but it's not so easy to get fish these days, and you know, sustainability problems. So the omega-3s now are being made increasingly directly from the algae. The fish get omega-3 from algae, and there are preparations of omega-3 now. You can buy capsules which are made from algae, not doesn't involve catching fish and taking their livers. Uh, and so we, we have a, if you're a vegan, we have a natural source of omega-3 which you can take. I recommend that. And it's the DHA omega-3 that seems to be a little bit more important for preventing dementia than the EPA, isn't that correct? Because that's what the algal, the algal products tend to be high in DHA. No, I wouldn't like to go down that route yet. I think it's too early to be okay. sure. Okay. Um, okay. So anyway, just get fish or fish oils or uh, vegan uh, omega-3 from algae. Do you supplement fish oils? Yes. Yeah, and you live in Sweden, which I think probably eats eats a lot of fish. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I'm David, uh, thank you so much for spending this hour with us and unpacking really an extraordinary career and series of, uh, of discoveries, which really show that for the large part, uh, uh, Alzheimer's dementia is a preventable disease, not reversible disease, and that's terribly important uh, because it means you want to act as soon as possible. And I would urge everyone listening over the age of 50 to go to foodforthebrain.org and do the cognitive function test. The chances are you'll be absolutely fine, uh, but there's a small percentage, maybe 10%, who will have slightly impaired cognitive function, which happens very early, or you can pick it up very early. And then you're in that zone that Professor David Smith has spoken about, um, where you can do something about it. So don't bury your head in the sand because you don't want to know. It's much better to measure your cognitive function test at foodforthebrain.org, find out what's going on, and then you can make some positive changes which could save your mind uh, and your life from this terrible disease. Professor David Smith, thank you immensely for all of your research and your time for this podcast. It's a pleasure.